Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we begin a New Testament, the New Testament, in fact. We are reading today from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 13, 14 to 25, and 57 to 80, the story of the birth of John. We see and affirm Luke's desire to offer us an orderly account of things, but y'all, there is something decidedly unorderly about the heavenly kingdom breaking through. This reading made us wonder, what if we could really live into a world where ye old power structures are put aside? and parents orient toward children, and children orient toward wisdom itself. How can we raise up all the ways that we may come to know what God wants us to know, both the shiny angelophanies and the quieter moments of deep knowing, deep in our bones? And what is it that we need, that you need, to feel saved, to feel safe, to live the life that you are called to? Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. How are ya? Hey, Amy. I am doing good. I'm good. Tell me a story from the last time I saw you. Something, anything that has happened in your life. (laughs) Well, what can I tell you? This has been a little bit ago, but I will tell you that I had a family reunion over the Thanksgiving break. And you know how we always joke that no one that we know listens to the podcast. <laughs> like uh-huh. our moms yeah. don't listen. Like nobody. I found out that I have several cousins who listen to Bible Worm. What do you know? Yeah. I've got two cousins in South Carolina who listen to Bible Worm. And I've got a cousin in California who listens to Bible Worm. I might have other cousins that listen to Bible Worm. I don't know. So now I'm like, wow, talking to my family on the worm. I think... My husband's uncle sometimes listens to Bible Worm. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, Your yeah. husband's uncle. That sounds like a swear word. Like, oh, um. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a monkey's uncle. Oh, my husband's like, uncle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. It's monkey's yeah. uncle, isn't it? He probably yeah. would like to be a swear word. He's a guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bobby, something new is under the sun today. It is. Is it a whole new <laughs> testament? It is a whole new testament. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is our first week reading from the Gospels. I always find it funny, although it's probably really not funny as a as a Hebrew Bible scholar, when people say something about the New Testament and I get this really surprised look on my face and I say, There's a new one? And then people are <laughs> people roll their eyes. So now my the whole audience can do can do that. They can all roll their eyes at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just did a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are, so this season, our, the gospel we're going to read through is the gospel of Mark. The gospel that of is Mark. the narrative lectionary gospel for this year. However, today we are not reading from the gospel of Mark. 
we are reading from the Gospel of Luke. You know, Mark has some problems when it comes to the Christmas season in that it does not tell any of the story of Jesus's birth. Mark just starts right in on the baptism when Jesus is a grown man. And so if you want to talk about cute little baby Jesus in the manger. Oh, Mark's like cut into the chase. Like, come on. Mark just gets to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, today we read from the book of Luke, chapter one, verses five to 13, and then 14 to 25 are optional in the narrative lectionary. What what does even optional mean? Well, it's not, uh, nothing. (laughs) It means we should read them. Yeah. So... And then also 57 to 80. I don't know if we have And also 57 said to 80, yes. I interrupted yes. you. I'm in that sort of a mood today. I, that's okay. I, that's good. My I like daughter's it. been telling her new favorite knock-knock joke, which I'm sure that you know. Knock, I can already knock. guess what it is based on the context <laughs> in which you're offering it. Yeah. But who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting Moo! cow. <laughs> <laughs> she laughs and laughs. Yeah. That's, Hilarious. That's classic. That's yeah. Classic. Oh, here's my, here's her other one that she was doing this weekend. (laughs) Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? (laughs) Knock, knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Banana, you glad I didn't say orange. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I was not expecting that turn of events. Wow. That's that makes really me laugh just, so much. She tells it that way every single time because I think she turned, hasn't. She turned the classic on its head. She did. She hasn't quite, I think, figured out that orange you glad is, is like what makes it It's supposed fun. to sound like. So she says banana you glad, you. which makes yeah. it like a hundred times funnier. It does. Moo! <laughs> oh, God. All right, sorry. Oh, folks, buckle up. This is going to be a great episode. All right, okay. here we go, here we go. <laughs> okay, okay, we're focused. Gospel of Luke, Bobby, <laughs> what do we need to know? Quick introduction to the what Gospel of Luke. Quick introduction. What should well, we know? So here's what I'm going to do, I think, is I'm just going to introduce us to the New Testament <laughs> as a whole. Great, great. So as we move to the Gospels, we have shifted from where we were previously, which was the time of the return from the exile in, I don't know, the fifth century, we have moved forward now to the Roman period. Uh, We're about 400, 500 years after where we were in Ezra. And we're at the time of the, obviously, of the birth of Jesus. The region of Judea, which is what Judah has come now to be called around Jerusalem, is occupied by the Romans. They have a puppet king. So the emperor of Rome, who is Augustus Caesar at this time, Octavian, is, you know, he's in charge of the empire. But Herod, who is known as Herod the Great, is the king of the region of Judea. He is the direct ruler of Judea, but he is ultimately loyal to the emperor. He's got his authority because Rome gives him the authority. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a period of, of occupation in a very direct sense. And this story then in the New Testament is sort of the unfolding of the story of Jesus and the the gospel within the context of a Judea that is occupied by the Romans. The understanding in the gospels is that we've been anticipating the arrival of a Messiah since the 
Davidic promise that we got back in 2 Samuel 7, anticipating a Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem forever, that didn't actually happen. The Davidic line ended with Zedekiah at the time of the exile, and there never was another Davidic king. And so there's this anticipation in some forms of Judaism uh, of a Messiah who would arrive. And so the story of the gospel is the story of the arrival of who the Christians come to understand as that Messiah, who is Jesus, who's going to come into the world in a time of Roman occupation and then establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, which we'll spend you know, the rest of this spring talking about. This story today is about John the Baptist, who is understood as the herald of the Messiah, connected to maybe to Elijah from the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Those were just some thoughts off the top of my head about things you need to know. Are there things that I should not have said (laughs) or things? (laughs) Uh, Well, you gave away that it's John, first of all. No, I think that was a really helpful introduction. Okay, so when I was preparing for today, I accidentally read the first four verses of Luke that are not included in our reading. But there's one thing that I just... I just have to add in to as like a specific introduction to the task that this this author is undertaking here. He's got this phrase, many people have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events. Yes. And he decides that even with all of these, uh, you know, I too decided after like thorough investigation to write an orderly account. Yes. And I just find that so, I don't know, strange and beautiful and human to try to create an orderly account over something that this is decidedly not orderly. Like this is the, this is the breaking through of, you know, the breaking through the layers of the cosmos or however we want to imagine it. But I found myself as I went on reading, sort of seeing these places where I'm like, there are these signs where like you're trying to create this like orderly logical story yes. out of something that is just it is something else, you know? Yes. And I uh I love, I love that, it. Amy. Yeah. Warmed my heart. It warmed my cold heart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have a lot of verses to get through today. We so do. I think we we best get started. I am reading from the NRSV and I am picking up in verse Five of chapter one. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Mm. Okay, so 
who begin at the beginning. I love the ways that this, the, the sort of orderliness of the account at the beginning here. Where are, you know, like, where are we in time? So it says the days of King Herod of Judea, who you mentioned in your introduction. Do we, should we want to put a time stamp-ish on this? So there are several Herods in the biblical text. That is so confusing. It is. It surely is. Yeah. Okay. Continue. The description of King Herod in Judea is a reference to King Herod the Great, who died sort of ironically. I know it's not ironic. He died in 4 BCE. And so we're somewhere around, I don't know exactly, we're slightly earlier than 4 BCE. The reason I say that's (laughs) ironic, of course, is because Jesus is born before Christ, which... Uh, yeah, doesn't quite work. But whoever was counting the time periods back from the Middle Ages just kind of, he just, I don't know, fudged the, forgot to carry the zero or whatever, carry the one, carry the zero. <laughs> like I'm a, I used to forget. be a chemical engineer. Now I, now I carry the zero. <laughs> so yeah, so we're sometime in the, I don't know, four to eight BCE, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So we're in that period of time. Okay, great. So we have a time. And then we get a priest mm-hmm. and it tells us, it, t- it we get a priest and his wife Yes, and we get both of their names and we get something about their lineage. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not really the lineage of Zechariah, but the order, the priestly order he belonged to. Yeah. My question here is, maybe it's a little weird, but like, do those details matter materially to the story? Like, does it, does it matter that he's in the priestly order of Abijah as opposed to some other priestly order? Or do you think that's there just like, we're just trying to anchor this in historical details? I think we're trying to anchor it in historical details. I also think it matters to Luke that they are both from a priestly family. And so whatever mm-hmm. is happening here is happening out of a priestly lineage. I, I think that matters. I'm I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure in what way that's mm-hmm. gonna matter, but it, it seems important. Whether the actual division of Abijah, the order of Abijah, is crucial, I don't I don't know. I mean that word means my the Lord is my father, right? Or something like that. And so mm. maybe that's sort of a play with what's happening here. This idea of the priestly divisions, just, Mm -hmm. you know, to give the background a little bit, as I understand it anyway, is that there were 24 divisions of priests Mm -hmm. and they each served at the temple for a week at a time, twice a year. And so you would live your life out in your village, wherever you lived, you would come into Jerusalem, serve in the temple for a week, then go back to your village, live your life. And then later, six months later, come back and serve for another week. And so Zechariah is one of those priests. He's not a priest who is always in Jerusalem and always at the temple. He is one of the priests who is out, who comes in. And so he's part of that, uh, part of that group. The other piece of sort of context it gives us before jumping into the plot is that we have here an elderly faith or aging. Yeah. Not elderly, faithful childless couple. I feel like I've heard that story somewhere before. <laughs> yeah, that, that it, it kind of perks up my ears a little bit. It perks up my ears a little and what, bit. In what way does it perk your ears? Like, is, do you go to something in particular? I mean, just this sort of 
you know, story of like being childless and faithful in some way. I feel like that just, that comes up a lot. Like, they, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that just comes up a lot in the Hebrew Bible. But the addition of them being elderly in here makes me think particularly of Abraham and Sarah. Yeah. The two stories that sort of ring in my ears are Abraham and Sarah. I think that's exactly right. And then the story of Hannah mm-hmm. re- sort of sounds, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, sounds sort of like this. It's, it's related to the priestly line and sort of involving the shrine at Shiloh. So there's something... Like in one ear, I'm hearing the Hannah story, and the other ear, I'm hearing the Sarah story. Yes, and there'll be other connections. There'll be other connections later that will that will pull on the Hannah story too. Exactly, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. It's worth. I mean, sometimes the logic of the narrative lectionary sort of uh, unfolds itself unto me <laughs> along the way. Mm-hmm. And so we read Genesis 18 and 21, the story of mm-hmm. Sarah laughing and the the miraculous birth earlier this year. And so I think that that was sort of preparing the way, as it were, for us yeah. to hear this story in a particular kind of kind of way. I wonder to like an ancient reader, whether putting this detail at the beginning of the story, assuming that the, the reader doesn't know how the story ends, that they would sort of know how it ends. Because this is such a common, it's just such a common story of yeah. the miraculous conception after barrenness. I mean, surely any any hearer of this story or reader of the story who had any conception of the Hebrew Bible would immediately go to that. It's just such a strong theme in the in the history and the tradition of yeah. Judaism. What you know, you mentioned before. Okay, so we've we have at least the Abraham and Sarah story and the Hannah story. Are there reasons that you think they would want to? Or are there resonances from those stories in particular that you would want to pull in in this moment? I mean, to me, the resonance that I would be hearing, especially from the Abraham and Sarah story, is that story was the beginning of God's covenant with the people of Israel. And so if we're retelling that story in some way, then we know that this story is likewise the beginning of some kind of momentous event. This is not just Mm -hmm. another story about another kid, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but this is Mm going to change things. And so I'm sort of eager about how that's going to play out. Are there other things that you're thinking about at this moment? That is the, the main thing on my mind too, is that it, it, it is the, it feels like the beginning of something Mm -hmm. if we're thinking about Abraham and Sarah. Yeah. Okay, so then the plot continues. Zechariah goes into the temple to serve, to offer incense, and he encounters an angel of the Lord. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that it gives us no description of what he saw or what that experience was like. Yeah. But clearly, Zechariah, you know, before we have all these stories of people not recognizing angels, but right. Zechariah knows exactly what's happening. I think so. He's a startled and overcome with fear. Is that why you say he knows exactly what's happening? Yeah, actually, maybe he doesn't know exactly what's happening. He just, he yes, he's terrified. <laughs> yeah. He feels fear. So you're right. Maybe he doesn't know it's an angel. He just knows this is, 
you're not supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think <laughs> he does point. know it's an angel. We don't get the fact that it's Gabriel until a little bit later. So yeah. he's not clear on the identity. I don't know. Like, I've never met an angel, at least that I knew I was meeting. And my imagination about it is that you would kind of know. <laughs> like, especially if you're in the temple, right? Like That's true. You have context clues. Maybe you could, <laughs> you could encounter an angel <laughs> somewhere like unaware. It's not like Abraham sitting at his, you know, under his tree <laughs> and like the oh, yeah, you know, three yeah. people who look like men or men or something like that come up. Context clues. Context clues. There's a couple of things here that to me are really interesting, Amy. One of them is it says he was selected by Lot to go in and make the mm-hmm. incense offering. This is, you know, so the... There's, there's sacrifices. This, this happens twice every day. But you're only there for two weeks a year. And there's this whole, like, priestly entourage that's there. And so this is like, you know, they cast lots to decide which of the priestly, the priests in the order are going to have this honor. And so mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that would only happen to you, like, once in a lifetime, probably. Yeah. And so this is a... like an exceedingly special moment. It's not like Zechariah's like hanging out in the temple all the time, making incense offerings. Like this is probably the one time he's gotten to go into the sanctuary to to perform this particular service. Mm. And so it's a, it's a moment. And when he's in there, he, there's like somebody else in there too. And so I think context clues. Yes. This also reminds me of the call story of Isaiah, where Isaiah likewise is in the sanctuary. There the seraphim show up and like the doors shake and all that stuff. Like it's very clear what's happening in Isaiah. But this sort of has a reminiscence about that to me too. It's like this idea of angels in the, in the sanctuary. So I don't know. So there's a lot going on for Zechariah right here. Like this is like the it's like, you know, if you get tickets to see Taylor Swift, like it's that, it's that kind of thing where you've been like waiting your whole <laughs> life. It's really hard. Maybe you're going to get them. Maybe you're not. Like, how do you, how do you know? And then you're like, yeah. And then you get backstage passes and there she is. I took that a little <laughs> far. I took that a little far. <laughs> yeah. It is just like that, Bobby. Mm-hmm. It's just like that. Mm-hmm. No, I think that I think that's really helpful context. It's like he he likely had never done this before and he likely would never do it again. That's exactly right. And I just can't even imagine the magnitude of just like I can't even imagine where his sort of head was or where yeah. his spirit was walking into the temple for the yeah. first time to make this offering of incense, which, you know, like we do have a story in the Hebrew Bible of of that being done wrong and the people die. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like yeah. this is <laughs> There's a lot of power in this moment. One of the things that you call me back to often is this power of holiness and the kind of electricity that God has. And like, like it is a, it is a thing, not just like a special moment to be in the sanctuary, but it's just like you're in God's house now. And there is an, I don't know, like an anxiety, a fearfulness, a holiness, a reverence, like yeah. all of those feelings that are positive and negative and they the get all fear and awe, together. right, yes. Mm-hmm. Does it surprise you at all that the angel says your prayer has been heard, but we didn't hear a prayer? Yeah. I mean, it's not that we can't fill in the blank, you know, you know, we can we can imagine what that prayer was and we've heard that prayer from Hannah, for example, you know. Yeah. And from other women who are 
quote unquote barren in the Hebrew Bible. Right. It's interesting whether this, what it's saying is that Zechariah has been praying in this moment as he was coming into Mm. the sanctuary, he's sort of praying for this thing or whether this is like long-term, like he's been praying for this for his whole adult life. That's such an interest. That's a really interesting question. I'm taking it. I can't, I think I've told you this. I'm taking a class in North African Jewish music. So yeah. <laughs> learning about all these traditions of Jews of North Africa. And one that I was reading about last night was sort of the difference between gen, uh, the gendered differences between what happens sort of in religious services in this, in this context and in, in Morocco. And it was talking about when the, when the ark, which is, you know, where the Torah scrolls are kept, when that is opened, the men have this specific liturgy that they recite every time. And it's always the same liturgy. And the women sort of put their hands out as though they're like receiving the glory of God. And they offer personal prayers because Mm. like, this is, this is the moment for them. That's like being in the temple. And this, this is the moment to get your prayers in for real. So I love that question. Was he actually offering his own prayers at this really powerful moment in his life? I also think it's so interesting that sort of emphasis on human agency here, like spoiler alert, what's about to happen is we're going to get the announcement of the forerunner of the Messiah. And that is said to come in response to human prayer. Yeah. So you wonder then if Zechariah had not been praying, like what, what would God have done? And I mean, we can't, we can't know that, Yeah. but it is interesting that it is framed as a response. Like the, the prayer is necessary to the proceeding of this life world changing event. I love that. Hi, I'm Julie Holm. I'm the pastor of a small rural community in the UCC and the ELCA, the Brush Valley Fusion of Faith. I was an early Patreon supporter because I loved the podcasts on the Narrative Lectionary, but this year I became a Bible study and liturgy supporter. I'm part-time, and I love that I don't have to spend hours preparing for our Bible study every week. Plus, my group just loves Bobby's Bible studies. The liturgy also gives me a real heads up on putting a worship service together, which I appreciate as a part-time pastor. Amy's responses both as a deep Bible scholar of her scriptures and as a novice to the Christian scriptures deeply inform new ways of looking at scripture, and I really appreciate that. I love Bible Worm, and I'm so glad to support it. Should we go on and meet this child? Let's meet this child. Let's meet this child. Well, we might not meet him right away. First, we'll go on. (laughs) Okay. So I am picking up in verse 14. The angel is still speaking. We kind of interrupted the angel. How dare you? You know, I just followed the divisions of the narrative legendary. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and the power of Elijah, he will go before them to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is probably not the place to start, but it's where my mind is drawn. Yes. Uh, Remembering, you know, how Sarah is sort of, well, we had a little debate in the episode about uh, Sarah's, you know, the announcement of Isaac's birth and whether Sarah had sort of been scolded or whether she should have just not tried to hide the fact that she laughed. Yeah. And here again, you know, here Zechariah doesn't laugh. Yeah. But he is, he is like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This seems unrealistic. Why should, why should I think this is true? And he gets in trouble. It's so interesting, Amy, because that in verse 18, when he says, how can I be sure of this? He's actually quoting what Abraham says to God in Genesis 15. And when Abraham says that to God, God takes Abraham out and shows him the sky and is like, look at the stars. And like, those will be the number of your descendants. Like, it's going to be amazing. Here's here's me floating around between the sacrifice. Like, <laughs> I was like, and then they do that weird sacrifice yeah. thing. Yeah. But then when Zechariah says it, I just love what he's like, how do I know this is true? And Gabriel's like, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> like you can read a whole lot into the tone of voice there. Like Hello. I leave my calling card. <laughs> I'm Gabriel. <laughs> That's how you know. It's like I'm an angel, man. <laughs> so yeah, it just makes me laugh. Like Zechariah gets he gets treated kind of harshly right here, where Abraham Abraham got this beautiful show of starry wonder. Yeah, that's true. Zechariah gets a little lip from an angel. <laughs> he gets. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. I did have this sort of, I mean, like the way you're going to know if it's, a, if it's true is that your wife will get pregnant. Yeah. Like either it'll happen or it won't. It's not like he has to do anything. I don't know. He just got to be patient, Zechariah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I read the justification as I'm Gabriel, but you're right. It probably is the justification is just wait and you'll see. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd, I do like your... I'm Gabriel. <laughs> you should know who I am. Yeah. Okay, so what should we know about Gabriel? Well, Gabriel. I mean, who is Gabriel? I mean, we don't actually know Gabriel very much from the Hebrew Bible. He shows up in the book of Daniel. He also shows up in the period between the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament in Jewish literature, the book of Enoch and elsewhere, as the messenger angel. And so Gabriel is the one who carries messages from God to humans. And that's his role really in the angelic realm. It is interesting that we haven't in this story 
we didn't know this was Gabriel until verse 19. And so Zechariah's gotten this whole announcement. He's not clear who he's talking to. Probably he knows he's talking to an angel. He doesn't know who that angel is. And so now we get it. Like, I'm Gabriel. Like, this is my job description mm-hmm. as I make announcements on behalf of God. God, Bobby, can you even imagine having this crazy, truly crazy experience with your one time in your life that you're going to be in the temple serving <laughs> yeah. and then you can't speak oh, yeah. when you come out. Yeah. Like you can't, not only can he not tell people about the specific vision and like yeah. the information he got, he can't talk about it at all. At all. Yeah. Like it reminds me of those like, you know, would you rather, like, would you rather whatever, win all these contests, but not be able to tell any of your friends or, you know, whatever, something like how much of the experience of something is the very fact that we can tell our community. Yeah. You got to put it on the gram and like do the whole thing. About it. (laughs) The gram? Did it really people? Do people say that? You don't I don't know, like middle-aged men who are trying to be cool apparently do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he could have done that mute. We couldn't have made a video though. Yeah. No, it's true. And, you know, the other, like there's so much to that. What Zechariah was supposed to have done, if you follow the Mishnah, is, is he was supposed to have gone in, made this incense sacrifice, gone back out, and spoken the priestly blessing from the Book of Numbers and so the people are out there waiting for him to come out to finish his ritual inside the sanctuary to come back out onto the portico and, and to bless them. And so he comes out there and he can't bless them. And so he can't even finish the ritual that he was supposed to have mm. been performing. And he can't tell anybody about it. It's so interesting that they figure out mm-hmm. that he must have had an experience of God in the sanctuary precisely because he's not able to tell them that he had an experience of God in the sanctuary. Right. I just like, there's something profound in that to me is like the inability to articulate it is the sign that it happened. Just, and as you were talking about Luke's trying to set out this orderly account of this disorderly world changing thing. And here it's exactly that the reason you know it's true is because you can't bring words, you can't can't put words around it. it. Yeah. Oh, that really just, um, that brought that sort of to a different level for me to think about the ways in which we try to, we want to put words around experiences of the divine. And we do, as long as we haven't been struck mute by the angel Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. But we also can't. Like we can, but we can't. Words words never quite yeah. do the job. Yeah. Okay, I I started sort of in the middle here, but I should back up to these things that the angel said to him before he struck mute. Yeah. So there are a lot of different things we could possibly talk about in here. But one thing that sort of struck me early on is this idea that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And I think I found that striking because, like, this child is so clearly... I guess, a gift from God or like an intention, this child is intentionally being given to them by God. And so I kind of see like God, it sounds like a dumb thing to say, but like God's driving this train, you know? Yep. And then it's so interesting to say he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Well, of course, because God, God made 
That's all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was yeah. like, you know, like, it's sort of like, it, it makes it seem like God all of a sudden would be like, oh, what a great child. Yeah. But, but God was doing the whole, I don't know. It added to me this sort of sense of, um, I don't know, like mutuality. Like, yeah. you know, God is the actor, but there also is a, a joy that God gets from the outcome of this that is not just. Yeah you know, God does what God wants and likes what God has done, you know? (laughs) No, that's exactly right. That language that's used there, he will be a delight to you, a joy and a delight, and people will rejoice in him and he will be great in the Lord's eyes. Reminds me of the wisdom's self-description in Proverbs 8, Mm. where she says, I was rejoiced, the Lord delighted in me and I rejoiced before him. And then I rejoice in the presence of humankind. And so there's a sense of like God and humanity are connected through their mutual joy and wisdom in Proverbs 8. And here it seems like the same kind of connection through John the Baptist here. So yeah, God and humans are sort of rejoicing about the same thing, which connects them. That's so beautiful. I just had skipped over the first part of that verse because I was like, of course you'll have joy and gladness. Like you're an old couple (laughs) having a baby. Like that's, of course you're going to be happy. Yeah. But I love that as this, this new human as a, the like focal point of joy coming from sort of both, both ends of the cosmos. I'm not sure what word to use for that. Bobby, what, I don't know, in this text or at this point in history, what do you think it means to say he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth? What is the Holy Spirit? You know, the, the, what that makes me think of is in the book of Judges, when you've got these people just sort of doing their stuff, you know, you've got like Gideon threshing mm-hmm. grain in the wine press, and then the Holy Spirit comes on him or the Spirit of God, however you want. I can't remember quite how it's worded there. And then they suddenly become able to do great things. They become the the powerful Mm. judges of Israel. And so there's this sense in which God inspirits people in ways that compel them toward doing great work in the world that they could not have done on their own. That's kind of the way that I am reading this is the spirit is going to empower John that way, even before he's born. Mm. And so what he does in the world is not merely his own human action, but is something that is compelled from, from the heavenly realm. I love that. And I love that it places us in sort of the uh, mindset, I guess, of judges, because then when it says he also shouldn't have strong drink, that, you know, implies this sort of like Nazarite tradition of a, a person being really devoted, really a person being devoted to God, devoting their life to serving God. And so there are requirements for that. One of them that you can't drink. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then there's a responsibility that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have. It's not simply that God is making this child a great child, but also like there are some things that the parents have to do in order to make Mm -hmm. this thing work out right. Like don't give your baby liquor. (laughs) Not (laughs) like maybe that hard a thing to do, but uh, there is sort of a collaborative effort here that's that's happening that I that I think is interesting. Yeah. And then we have the mention of Elijah. Mm. 
there are so many different things it might be pulling from. But the specific context here is with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before them. Yes. To turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yes. That's a lot. That's, that's, a, a, lot. that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. How do you want to dig into that? Do you want to talk about Elijah? Do you want to, like, what is it about Elijah they're trying to draw upon or or sort of skip to the second part? I mean, the first thing that I that I heard as you were reading it just then was Isaiah 40 is very clearly in the background there, preparing a way for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, this text is understanding this baby John as doing that thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 40, which is... It's almost like tilling the ground or something, like getting the people ready for the Lord to appear in a new kind of way. So he's being instructed that way. What would you say about that connection to Elijah? It seems so important here. Yeah, I mean, okay. So first I'm just thinking back to the stories of Elijah and the specific things that it says that this person is going to do to turn the hearts of parents to their children and And so I started thinking about like Elijah's attempts to persuade people. You know, we read the the dramatic account in this year's narrative lectionary and trying to persuade people to follow God and not the Baalim. Yeah. And also just the the sort of, I don't know, power holiness within Elijah and his, his capacity to make things that seem pretty impossible happen, the miracles Mm -hmm. of Elijah. You know, there's also a a tradition that because the Hebrew Bible does not narrate the death of Elijah, but just says that he rose to the heavens, that that he's not actually dead and will come back to herald the coming of the Messiah. So I would imagine in this context that naming Elijah and connecting this baby somehow to Elijah, even though it doesn't say he is Elijah. Right. (laughs) But it says he, with the spirit and power of Elijah, yes. it's at least gesturing towards towards that tradition that he is he is that he's the one who comes before the Messiah. So someone's coming, someone's going to come after him. But he has his own work to do before the Messiah comes. Yeah, that reference that to Elijah coming heralding the Messiah is in Malachi four five mm-hmm. and six, and that has become in the Christian tradition an exceedingly important verse for understanding who John the Baptist is in relationship to the arrival of Jesus. I think it's important what you're saying is that it's not saying he is Elijah, but he has the spirit and power. And so it's gesturing in that direction of preparing the way. The other thing that's so interesting to me in that little description of what he's going to do is that verse that says he's going to turn the hearts of parents to their children which I feel like is the reverse of kind of like the whole book of Proverbs is saying children need to like do what their parents say in order to be righteous. Here it sort of flipped that and said, what John is going to do is turn the hearts of parents or fathers back to their children, implying that the world has gotten off balance in such a way that people are only thinking about themselves and their own moment in history. And they're not thinking about future generations. They're not caring for their children. I feel like that's a theme we've been coming back to again and again this whole season about the sort of generational issues and people sort of not, people failing to think about the the future 
And here, part of John's role is to turn to make parents think about their children, <laughs> like take responsibility for the future. I don't know. That just, given what we've been talking about this fall, that's struck me in a different I kind love of way. that. I love that connection. And I had noticed too that it, it, I was, you know, it's a little surprising that it says, it's one thing if it says children towards parents and parents towards children, but it doesn't yeah. say that. It doesn't. It says parents towards children. Yeah. And then, lest you think that that means that wisdom doesn't matter, mm. it balances it out by saying it turns the heart of the disobedient not to the righteous. Right. But to the wisdom of the righteous. Yes. And so I feel like it still retains what you just sort of lifted up as this. We're putting aside that power structure where the older generation is the one in charge, but we're not dismissing the wisdom that they have. And so if we could, if you can imagine a world where the older generations are oriented towards the younger, but the younger are oriented towards the wisdom of the, or maybe yes. not the younger, but the, the disobedient, whatever, the rebels, the people who, I don't know what it means here by disobedient, but that somehow there is an orientation towards yeah. the wisdom. Yeah. That would be pretty good. Yeah. I'm excited about this. I'm excited now. about that too. Yeah. Yeah. So the older generation is wise enough to know that what happens to the children matters. Mm-hmm. And then people, the younger generation is able to live into that sort of wisdom of the ages and propagate that. Yeah. And when the older generations are not paying attention to future generations, that throws the whole balance off. Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to be corrected. I, I like that a lot. Well, and I feel like there's a corrective to selfishness or self-centeredness yeah. on either side. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it manages to do it without reference to the traditional power structure. Yeah. I love that, Amy. All right. Are you ready to press on? I'm ready to press on. Then we are skipping a bit and picking up in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. He was holding in a lot during that time. He, he was. was. <laughs> I guess he had nine plus months to think about what he was going to say. To like compose a really lovely, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lovely little poetic prophecy for us. Yeah. Amy, there's one detail in this story that I, so when they want to ask Zechariah what they, he sh- they should call the child, it says they begin gesturing to him, mm. which suggests to me that Zechariah is not only unable to speak, but he's also unable to hear. Otherwise they would just say to him like, yes. hey, what do you want to call the kid? <laughs> yeah, and, he, and then he would write it down. That may not be the most, it is not the most urgently important thing here, but it affects the way that I read this whole thing. If I think of him as being both unable to speak what's on his mind, but also unable to hear what is going on around him. Do you have thoughts about that one way or another? uh, That really changes. Yes. That really changes things because you could imagine, like I, I was trying to imagine what it was like these months that, that he was at home with his wife unable to speak, but if she could speak to him and he could write, right? then I don't know, it's annoying, but it's not, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, not that bad. Yeah. But yeah, if he couldn't hear either. It's yeah. not said in the text, but I don't know. No, it's why not said in they, the text, but you're right. Why else would they be why gesturing? Would they be gesturing to him. To him. So I think of Zechariah as being unable to speak or, or hear from the time of the angelic appearance until the birth of the baby or until the announcement of his name. But anyway, okay. Onward. Yeah, no, it's the whole name thing is interesting because I, I mean, I get, we don't want to spend a lot of time on the name, but I was before I was thinking like they see it. The crowd seems so shocked that both the (laughs) wife, the mother and the father have articulated the same name here. I'm like, don't you think they have communicated about this? (laughs) Yeah. Like Zechariah has said at some point along the way, like written it down or something like told her what happened. I guess we're assuming some things about literacy there. It's it's unlikely, actually, now that we were talking about it, that she is probably able to read and write. It might be unlikely mm. that he, I guess he writes it down. I mean, though, he writes he? it down. Yeah. yeah, it's. This is, again, where we're trying to create this, like, orderly story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and sort out all the details, and, and I don't know. I mean, it is clear enough that the, like, the amazing thing here is that Zechariah and Elizabeth come to the same name. Yeah. And it's and, a name that should not have been this child's name. Like, the, right. clearly there's a tradition to name first for the father or for someone else in the family, if not right. for the father. And John is just a really random name. So the question of like, why is everybody so amazed? <laughs> you know, like yeah. if it's just like, whoa, they named him John instead, you know, like, I don't know. That doesn't seem like it would make people in the hill country of Judea talk about it. The only way that in this story makes any sense to me 
is if the, if the understanding is that Elizabeth and Zechariah have been unable to communicate with one another yes. about what they're going to name this child. Yes. And so she comes to the name and he she comes, comes to, to this the name. Ra- yes, exactly. It's like they both wrote it down on a little piece of paper. Yes. <laughs> like they wrote the same thing. Oh my goodness. Yes. Now that is worthy of people talking about in the hill country of Judea. Yes. Which does raise the question for me, which the, the text I don't think really goes into unless it's in this section that we didn't read, but what has Elizabeth's experience been this whole time yeah. that she also knows? Like she has had some kind of experience. Yeah. To me, that's such, so inter- the story doesn't quite get us here, but it's such an interesting thing to kind of play with is if we're reading it that way, that they that Zechariah has not been able to communicate to her that Gabriel told her to name him John. Mm-hmm. And she has come to that some other way, which I think is how I really want to read this mm-hmm. in order for it to make sense. Then the question of how did she come to it is a like a kind of an urgently important one. We're not told. Do you if you had to fill in that gap, how are how do you fill it in? I mean, I I think she I think this is, I'm really just making things up, but I think that maybe she didn't have quite something so clear as a vision, but she clearly is getting some divine communication that she may or may not recognize as divine communicate. You know, like yeah. sometimes you just know things because you know them. Yeah, you, you just feel do. it in your bones, as, yeah. you, as you like to say. So yeah. clearly she got some kind of communication. She wouldn't have just come to the name John. I, I think that's a t- totally reasonable way to read it. It might be the right way to read it. I've also been like, his name is Yochanan. The Lord is gracious. Mm. And that is actually her experience here, I think, is that God has been gracious to her and to Zechariah. And she just knows that to be true. And she wants to name the child something that acknowledges the Lord has been gracious to us. And so then it's, like I'm making it less divine revelation. No, but you are and you more are like making woman's it sort of intuition. Sh- right. Yes. She gets to it. She gets to it herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she is perceptive about what God has done and what God is like. And so she comes to the name that way. Zechariah mm-hmm. comes to it through an angelophany. And so yeah. the angel confirms her experience of God or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have spun something out there that's not exactly in the text, but the the gap in the text leaves us a question. Yeah, Yeah. the text leaves us a question in that regard. Okay, we got to talk about this beautiful poetic prophecy here that that Zechariah offers us. Yeah, and I think there are many things we we could talk about, but what really stands out to me is the focus on salvation. The focus on salvation. And my question is sort of what does it mean at this point and what does it mean at different points in this poem? You know, this in verse 69, it says, in my translation, he has raised up a mighty savior for us. And the notes in the Jewish annotated New Testament suggest that this is, this is a phrase that literally means horn of salvation. Yeah. 
which in 2 Samuel, that same phrase is used to refer to God, God's self, like God is the, the horn of salvation. Yeah. And, and then it goes on to sort of talking about being saved from the enemies, saved from the hand of all who hate us. Yeah. And it, it makes it sound like they are at this moment in danger and this, yeah. this savior is going to get them out of that situation. But are, are they, in, how do you understand it? Like, are they thinking about salvation like safety from a dangerous situation or has it come to mean something else by this point in history? It's so interesting too, because when they say to rescue us from our enemies in verse 74, then it's so that we could serve him without mm. fear. Yes. yes. And so yes. we can yes. worship, we are going to be able to worship God the way we are supposed to worship God, the way we want to worship God without fearing the repercussions. Yes. So that is the reason for the saving. Yeah. So it seems to me that the interpretation here that at least Zechariah has is that there is something about the current context in which they are not able to live the way that they want to live without fear of actual political human Mm -hmm. enemies Mm -hmm. who are forcing them or seducing people toward another way of life. So, you know, me, I want to read this as being about the occupation of Judea by the Romans, both a military occupation, but maybe I want to think about it more as a cultural occupation that, you know, you just live life the way Rome wants you to live life. And it can actually be kind of nice, you know, Uh, it might not be the way the value system that has been put forth in the Hebrew scriptures. But if you do what the Romans want you to do, like it, it'll go better for you. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the way that I read it is this sense of like a cultural occupation. Although we're in a situation of literal colonization. And so we've got that sort of overlap. And so the people are not in charge of themselves. They are not in charge of their values. They are not able to live the way they want to live. And so this is going to be salvation from that, mm-hmm. that's kind of my first go-to. What What do you think when when you read that? I think it mostly, for me, just sort of raises it. Like I, I'm really interested in this idea, I guess, that we need to be saved or need to be safe in order to be free to serve God without fear. Yeah. And then my question is, saved or safe from what? Like, yeah. what is it that blocks us yeah. or makes us afraid? Yeah. And to, to just sort of play through all the different things that it could be in that historical context and in this one is, uh, yeah. is, is really interesting. And then to think through the way that that salvation plays out and the idea of salvation plays out in the in the Christian tradition, at least as as best as I understand it for as an yeah. outsider to it, that it's not that the cultural influence pulling us in a different direction goes away. It doesn't. No. It's just another alternative is put on the table. Yeah. So interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I've been teaching the narrative lectionary texts that we do on the podcast at my community, Canvas community, where, you know, a lot of the folks that are there are homeless. And a few weeks ago, I was reading that Josiah text, 
You remember where Josiah is the righteous king and he treats the workers really well. He doesn't mm-hmm. account for their money. Yeah. And their response was that Josiah was naive mm-hmm. and that they were going to, he was going to get taken advantage of mm-hmm. and that he needed to be firmer in his rule or else the people were going to go all crazy. That's so interesting, that response, because like there is the, like Josiah is living the way he's supposed to live, which is trusting people that the world actually can work this way. But people are afraid that if you live that way, yeah, somebody else is going to take advantage of you. And the thing is, they might. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not it. That's not a, a yeah. bad thought. No, no, no. It's ex- yeah, you're right. And so this you have is to the do world it in which even we live. though they might. Yeah. So even though we're not living in a moment of military occupation in that sense here, but we are living in the moment in which living according to biblical values is a kind of a dangerous thing to do because people will take advantage mm-hmm. of you or they could mm-hmm. and people will, mm-hmm. you know, treat you poorly. And so it's interesting to think about that as like what do we need to be saved from? And what is the what is the sin that is surrounding us? And I always want to frame that in terms of, as you were doing, alternative systems of values that pull us away from living the way that God wants us to live. And, and it's kind of all around us. Yeah. The thing that strikes me in this song that Zechariah sings here, especially somehow when you were just reading it just now, is the turn that it takes in verse 76. So up until then, it's recalling the past. Like, here's what God has done to us in the past. And then it it addresses John, you child. And I was trying to think of other songs sung to babies, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. or songs like Hannah's song or others. And this one, I think, I don't know, but it, it is notable in the way that it just suddenly shifts to addressing John. You will be called a prophet. You will teach this people. I don't, there's just something about this old man talking to this eight day old baby and saying, you're going to, you're going to be the one who changes things on this theme of generational, you know, respect or generational value. I don't, there's just something really beautiful about that to me. Yeah. And then I, I love too that this little last note we get in verse 80 that he was in the wilderness until mm-hmm. the day he appeared publicly to Israel. And there's, yeah. you know, that I didn't comment on it at the time, but when Elizabeth gets pregnant, she says she stays in seclusion for, you know, over half of her yeah. pregnancy. And it, I don't know, when I read it here after the song, it just, it made me think of, like the nature, the nature of of the work he has to do, and how hard it is, and how sort of countercultural it is, and how much I don't know. It's just really easy to get off track, <laughs> and and I, it seems like part of how he, how John manages that is to is to not go out in public until he's yeah. ready to do the work, like yeah. to save his energy. Yeah, it's, it's easier like the to introvert's be dream. in the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bobby, we could say so much more about this song, but we also are coming up to the end of our time, I think. So I'm going to move us into our final question. What would you raise up from this text? I think the thing that is really sticking with me, although this sort of surprises me that this is where my head is, 
but it's about this issue of the way they come to the name Yohanan. Mm. And as I'm reading the text anyway, Zechariah comes to that name because he has this dramatic experience of the angel in the sanctuary who announces it to him in a response to Zechariah's prayer. Maybe it's the prayer he's prayed over a lifetime. Maybe it's the prayer he was praying when he came into the sanctuary. But God has responded to Zechariah, something that Zechariah seems to have kind of initiated and blessed him and then given him this name. Totally separate from that, we have Elizabeth who seems to come to the name Yohanan independently of that divine revelation. And so she simply has her own experience of God and that this baby is an act of God's graciousness. And she, I think, just wants to acknowledge what God has done for her. And so instead of saying, we're going to name him Zechariah after his dad, Zechariah Mm -hmm. Jr., uh, she says, we're going to, this child's name is going to acknowledge what God has done. So she comes to Yohanan, John, based on her own sort of faithfulness, her own intuition, her own acknowledgement of what God has done. And then those two things miraculously yeah, they converge. converge. Mm. And I think all that, that, all that I'm really wanting to do with that is to say, God speaks to different people in different ways. Yeah. And sometimes it's dramatic. Yeah. Sometimes it is subtle and intuitive, Mm -hmm. and just maybe even Elizabeth didn't know that what she had come up with, I don't think she did know that what she had come up with was also something that God had Mm -hmm. sort of commanded, but she comes to it anyway. And I just, there's something that's so rich to that to me about our experience of God's action in the world, our experience of God's will can come in these very different ways and equally so, yes. so we can appreciate one another and our own access to the divine in, in whatever way it might yeah. come. Oh, I love that, Bobby. I really love that. What are you seeing in this text, Amy? You know, I was really drawn in this in this song at the end. I was talking a little bit about salvation and, and what do we mean by salvation? And there's that I think, okay, salvation, what do we mean by salvation and the role of fear in this whole Mm. thing that we need to be safe or to feel, to know that we are safe or saved before so many other things are possible. Mm. Yeah. There's a Jewish thinker named Mordecai Kaplan, 20th century Jewish thinker, who is the founder of Reconstructionism. And he uses the word salvation in his writings, which makes some Jews uncomfortable because it sounds it has come to sound Christian to our yeah. ears, even though yeah. clearly it is nothing inherently Christian about it. And his notion of salvation is that God is the force that makes human salvation or self-fulfillment possible. Like our salvation is our our living fully into the life that God has given us, living, feeling free and empowered to live in our values and our talents and our passions and our loves. And Mm -hmm. God is the thing that makes that possible. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, I'm just sitting with what 
what this text means by salvation and what I mean by salvation and what is the thing from which I need to be yeah. saved. Yeah. That sounds so weird to say as a Jewish person. <laughs> <laughs> so on that awkward note. No, I think that is, yeah, I think that's a really nice reading of the text. And like, if you get away from that word salvation and say like, what are the forces in the world that are impeding our ability to live? To the live the, way the fullest way live. that God Yes, has created us. Suddenly there's so many answers and so many things to examine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, my friend, next up, we will move to our gospel for this season, the gospel of Mark, chapter one, verses one through 20. And we're going to just read through almost all of that whole gospel. It's true. We'll just be there for months. It'll be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll get to know Mark really well. Mm -hmm. It was fun talking with you, my friend. I'll you see too, you next Amy. Time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Next week, we move into the Gospel of Mark, where we will be for quite some time. We'll start at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Until then, keep on digging.